Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Friends, I am so excited to kick off a series of episodes on horror. To celebrate the release of my novel Hawk Mountain in paperback, I'm posting a series of episodes on my favorite genre, which is horror. Hawk Mountain being nominated for the Penn Faulkner Award uh, kind of inspired this a bit. It was a, such a surprise to me that I was longlisted, that the book was longlisted for that award, because it is the closest in my knowledge that a horror novel has ever come to winning that prestigious prize. And then I looked at my own surprise and I thought, wow, there are ways in which, because I'm writing something that has been called horror or literary horror or horror adjacent, I stigmatize my own writing. I think about the ways that it might be dismissed out of hand or afterwards be dismissed for being too upsetting to readers. That's interesting to me because I love the genre. And in fact, I think this means that I am afraid of horror itself. And I think we all are. There are few genres that have inspired such a furious <laughs> current of regulations and stigmas and anger. I mean, aside from pornography, maybe, and pornography might be beyond genre and in fact its own form, but we'll talk about that more in some other series of episodes. Horror is regulated by governments. It's been the topic of countless sociological examinations and moral panics, and it's been blamed for disintegrating societies, the erosion of youth, imagination, and more. Horror itself horrifies. And when horror does become accepted, at best it is said by critics to transcend the genre, which means it's really just transcending the stigma that the critics had by reasserting the stigma and saying, well, we're past this with this work. This happens so often that this is a belabored observation. Nevertheless, even though it's been observed again and again, that claim to transcendence keeps happening. But, you know, I don't want to talk about how beleaguered and hard it is for horror, because the fact is, horror is also wildly popular. Even a terrible horror movie can become quite popular. And the most consistently best-selling author of all time, Stephen King, is a horror writer. So what does that mean? Across these episodes, I'll be talking about all of that. I'll be talking about horror in its many forms, cosmic horror, body horror, suburban horror, monsters, possession, and more, with some of my favorite horror creators and horror thinkers. We'll be asking deep questions about horror and seeing what unlit paths they lead us down. What is horror for? Why do we condemn horror even as we flock to it? Is there a horror nature to being? What happens when the imagination explores its inner violence, darkness, and screaming, and then conjures it into art. You don't have to know much horror or even like horror to follow along with these episodes because horror offers something to us. In fact, it offers many things to us. So each one of these episodes will reveal some unilluminated aspect of life. I believe that horror remains the best tool to investigate evil and to overcome it, so there's a spiritual offering there as well. To kick off this series, I'm going to start with the tension between the horrors of the cosmos, or the human condition, and the horrors of the personal, the smaller horrors, with horror scholar and writer Matt Carden. 
Matt wrote once that life itself is inevitably a hypnosis. Another way to get to the bottom of that is a lyric from a song by a band I love, Lungfish, which is, to exist is to comply. What this all means is that there is something about the condition of being human that is horrific. And it is true if you just consider it in your own life and existence. Being human involves necessarily creating cruelty and suffering for others inflicting it on others. We all create horror by our consumer choices, our support for the wage-labor relationship, our constant consumption, even just supporting states. We can't even take a step without obliterating something under our feet. And in fact, when we use our senses to apprehend the world, even light dies for us to give us sight. Molecules and vibrations die to give us taste, smell. We transmute the world into meaning for ourselves by killing it. What do we do with this horrific truth? Horror writers like H.P. Lovecraft, Thomas Ligotti, Algernon, Blackwood, and others all trace it and its contours, maybe warily, maybe even with some fear on their own part. And so does Matt. Matt Cardin first came to my attention via his appearances on the Weird Studies podcast, first on Weird Studies 41 and then episode 126, where he spoke with such frightening depth about horror that I knew <laughs> the horrifying must have across his life shocked him into new avenues of being. He's the author of many books, including the story collection To Rouse Leviathan and also What the Damon Said, Essays on Horror Fiction, Film, and Philosophy. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Before we begin, I've done plenty of episodes on horror before, and perhaps it's worth noting that episode 201 on the spiritual life of horror is just me mulling over the spiritual value of this dark art. That episode, as well as all the episodes, are free. This show is supported by Patreon patrons, not ads or sponsors. These are people, maybe like you, who go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib to support the show. The show depends on listeners like you supporting it. If you do, thank you. If not, please do go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show. It's so easy. You can do it in just a couple minutes. You can do it right now. This is about supporting artists, creators. It's not about paying people for their labor, which is why I really like the Patreon model. It's saying, hey, I like who you are and what you do in the world. There's some value there, and I want to connect with it. And this is a way to connect with it and to keep it going. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can also buy and share my novel Hawk Mountain, which is out in paperback from Norton in the U.S. and out in paperback in a few days, <laughs> but you can still buy the original edition, which is also a different form of paperback, in Ireland, the UK, and Australia from Penguin Ireland. And you can start Hawk Mountain Book Clubs if you want. If you do start a Hawk Mountain Book Club and it has more than 20 readers, feel free to reach out to me. I'm open to doing appearances, obviously <laughs> brief Zoom appearances uh, on Book Club Day with book clubs if you want. You can also give the book a five-star rating on Goodreads and the podcast a five-star rating and a warm review on Apple Podcasts, only if that's your honest response, of course. One last note here before we start, since I haven't said it in a while, the theme song to this show was 
written originally by me and my friend Jeb Havens, a game designer who's been on the show, and it's been rewritten by Ben Chasney, also known by his band name Six Organs of Admittance. All right, I just wanted to throw that out there before we started because I haven't uh, name-checked him for a little while, and he deserves credit. He's a great musician, and I'm so happy that he's a part of the show every time it starts, like now. Hello, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And uh, for this first episode on horror and a series of episodes on horror, we're beginning with you, Matt Cardin. Hello. Hello, Connor. I appreciate you having me here because what you just described is a topic that is near and dear. I'm going to start with the big picture when it comes to horror, I suppose. Um, I don't mean the overview of horror. I mean the kind of horror that some people call cosmic horror um, because, you know, I, I tend to, I think people tend to think of horror when they're not thinking of someone like HP Lovecraft or Thomas Ligotti as uh, something that happens to individuals very often in suburbs, all that. But I just talk about this idea of horror being um, a condition of being human or at least the conditions of human humanity being horrific? You bet. I understand what you mean. And uh, in my own thinking and in my own writing, I've tended to go more for the jugular of that, uh, of the, the more cosmic and the more philosophical and that kind of thing. And anybody who's read my work will know that, you know, but at the same time, what you're describing um, is something that that fiction writers deal with all the time it's that you you may have this vast idea or maybe you're writing from an emotion or something like that but you certainly have to find a way to specifically embody it in, in some kind of narrative you know even if you're writing something like Legati's the red tower which uh, i love to point to and a lot of people love to point to as a, a horror story that's not really a story it has no plot it has no characters it's just an extended description of setting but it's one of the most horrifying things ever written, you know, and it had to be presented in a specific way. There's all kinds of specific imagery and specific language that he uses. That's one of the first places my mind goes. You, 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 so you're talking about the tension between horror as an existential condition uh, in an abstract sense, and then horror as a an everyday thing. That's kind of, that, that ties together, I think, fiction and life right there. In fiction and in life, you have kind of the background notion or feeling but then there's always going to be some kind of specific way that it intersects with your actual experience that it manifests in a concrete way i think maybe <clears throat> when we talk about that kind of horror that sort of background horror whatever coming to the fore you know some of it might be about actually just the the banishment of our sense of individuation in the first place. I mean, people talk about death that way all the time as some sort of great equalizer or whatever. But if we talk about uh, an inescapable horror as a condition of being human, then we lose our individuation in a way. Um, 
so I wonder if that's actually also part of it is that there's some kind of like collectivist uh, terror there before, before I even like let you take that up, I want to just stand back and say, I'm often kind of like rallying against people just saying that horror is a metaphor for some other kind of fear. Um, mm. I, I don't like that. I mean, for, for one, because uh, the, the horror fears are often sort of older and more developed than the kind of newer fears that spin out of them. And then we say, oh, it really means this, you know, um, like our fear of, you know, communists in Rosemary's baby is not as old as our fear of witches and witchcraft and the devil. So <laughs> why is it that one, not the other? But I think that um, I wonder if you want to maybe talk about that question of individuation, because there is a sense of uh, in some of your stories of losing the self, having it kind of blend into a horrible vastness. Yeah. The, the, uh, before I do, before I address that specifically, I want to say that I've heard you talk before you say you've rallied against the idea that horror is just a metaphor for something else. You know, uh, you and I are on the same wavelength when it comes to that. It's not that I don't see the value in what a lot of, um, academics especially are doing uh, and a lot of uh, colleagues that I've worked with when they read, for example, Dracula as a metaphor for, you know, psychosocial, uh, psychosexual anxieties in the late 19th century, <laughs> you know, British uh, culture and, and a metaphor for colonialism and, and the horrors of this, that, and the other. I mean, uh, and, and the, the fear of the other invading in a real, you know, sociological sense sure it's I, that's all there but i'm with you it's 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 uh that's all kind of further down on the scale there's something more fundamental i think mm -hmm. and as far as the thing about individuation um there's a paradox involved there and it takes you right to the paradox of being human uh, the, the paradox of horror right there and i think one place you can see that fault line i'm not sure what's the right metaphor here running through someone's work is in the work of Lovecraft. Mm. And uh, where you can see it especially is in the fact that for him, and you can see it in his letters, and you can see it in his stories, you can see it in a, an essay or two that he wrote, like Supernatural Horror in Literature, the idea of the individual self being bound up in something vast and huge, you know, and the walls of... of uh, normal perception and normal identity and normal consciousness as, as defined and bounded for him by things like, uh, you know, the rational ego and, and uh, uh, mechanistic materialism and that kind of thing, a real individual identity facing the cosmos. The walls of those coming down are kind of horrifying for him. You know, you encounter these vast things that dwarf you and that probably show that you, your little rational self is actually just this tiny, tiny little speck floating on a wider ocean of being and identity. And that's horrifying. At the same time, the fault line is found in the fact that you see him saying over and over and over, and you see him embodying it or, you know, describing it, giving fictional representations in his dream stories, that this is also a wonderful thing. This mm -hmm. sense of transcendence. Oh, he was, he was just in awe of sunlight, uh, you know, hitting the windows the gabled windows of all these uh, New England uh, roofs, uh, skyscapes, sunsets, cityscapes at twilight. And so for him, it was both. It's like, oh, this, this sense of transcendence is kind of blissful. It's something that can seem like a dream you want to disappear into. And it's also a nightmare. And I think, now I'm turning from Lovecraft to me, 
that that's built into being human where we're all living this experience of seeming like or feeling like being an individual in a world we have the subjective objective boundary you're born into a world you have this sense of subjectivity formed and now in a real sense it is you against the world you know the world is constantly trying to destabilize and break down the body and the mind and so on. It's a struggle to achieve individual identity. And you know, you're headed towards death when that will go away. And that's the ultimate fear. But the very condition of being like that creates the fear. You're a finite being, you sense. Uh, and it's like the thing you long for the most and the thing that most horrifies you, the thing of greatest dread is this boundary being breached that runs through religion, of course, as well. Transcendence, is it, is it fearsome? Or is it uh, fascinating and wonderful? I've tended to move toward the fascinating and wonderful and lately, but the horror thing is what hit me for mm. years and years. That's what I wrote out of. Yeah. It, <clears throat> it's funny because I I remember when I was younger reading, I mean, I must have been like early 20s and I read a book called The Information by Martin Amos. And there's this whole thing about this guy staying up late at night because he is thinking about the vastness of the universe and how that means that it can't, you know, that he's insignificant. And I, I remember even then thinking, well, wouldn't that mean that you're absolutely significant? Like if this place is so vast, but you exist, then you must be, you know, entirely significant. And that, you know, actually you're a, com a condition of the completeness of everything, you know, but I, I, I do think that then there's like, this moment where that what you're talking about this idea of it's almost like the membrane of selfhood dissolving and you becoming mm -hmm. and you know if you accept that there's reincarnation or uh afterlife or whatever then maybe that is not so terrible maybe it's like well actually the membrane going away brings you know yes you lose all the conditions of this kind of existence but then you enter into a different sort of existence but there's something more there with what i see you writing about often which is i think that actually would not <laughs> that your consciousness would go on but it would not be happy whether it's someone you know um <laughs> watching their body deteriorate from illness to sort of blend themselves into an encounter with a, a, a sickening God, or if it's someone whose uh, <laughs> who's life force has been kind of like sucked out of them in a way, moving around uh, mm -hmm. and, and sort of killing people or absorbing people as he goes. There's this idea that actually when we lose our membrane, something terrible happens. It's not hell, um, but it's, uh, something about as soon as the boundary is taken away, something bad will happen. So I thought maybe that's a, like a bit different than it's not about the dread of death or, uh, it's, it's something else. It's about the loss of uh, a form, which also has its challenges. It is. And it's built right into the nature of individuated self-conscious selfhood like we're talking about um, one, one metaphor that I've used before that has been helpful for me in my thinking and understanding how this all works is the metaphor of the sacred canopy that uh, Peter Berger, you know, the great sociologist came up with. He has a book titled that. And uh, 
he when he when he lays out the idea of the sacred canopy, he's laying out the idea that there's like this uh, overarching sky, this firmament of meaning that each culture develops. And people who are raised within a given culture live under this quote unquote sacred canopy. It's sacred because it it, it creates all it's unquestionable in and of itself. It creates all the categories of meaning by which we interpret and understand just the flux of the world, right? So it tells you who you are. It tells you what uh, other people are like. It tells you what to expect out of life. It may or may not have a religious or spiritual component to it, but in any case, it tries to answer ultimate questions for you. And again, it gives you sort of this grid through which everything is filtered. And he pointed out that in uh, in actual real historical experience, you get cultures that where their sacred canopy is pierced or torn, so to speak, mm -hmm. by encounters with things, whether from encounters with other cultures, and we can all think of lots of examples of that, or just encounter with encounters with events in the natural world that don't make sense. It somehow can't be accounted for under their sacred canopy. And so you get, uh, he calls, he, he, he says the sacred canopy uh, creates what is a, a nomos, a nomos, you know, a, a named order of things where you actually have a classification, a definition, a name for everything that comes up. So we know the term anomic, you know, or an anomaly, something that can't be named, that has no name. You literally have an anomaly enter your universe. If if you if something happens to come into your field that doesn't seem to make sense, obviously you can hear the cosmic horror resonances right there, but it, it plays right down to the individual level. That's what's fascinating to me. It's not just a culture. Each of us basically and used or has that word that you use, which is the word that I use, a membrane. It's an invisible membrane that is the boundary between subject and object, between you and the world in which you perceive yourself to be plunged from the moment you're born, or at least from the moment you become self-aware. And uh, you encounter things all the time that don't seem to have a place within it, especially if you're extremely self-aware or extremely adventurous. That's why after your world has been formed by your culture, by your parents, maybe by your own thinking, by your reading, by whatever. Um, a lot of us get into a rut because it's just easier that way, you know, but it is, it is terrifying to have your veil of meaning torn. And the, and the, the single most pointed tearing of that is something that calls into question whether or not you really are this island identity, whether the membrane is even real. And so that's why the mm -hmm. things like the, the awakening that mystics have always sought, you know, or that people think about uh, enlightenment and Zen or whatever, even the, the beatific vision within Christianity of finally finding your own place uh, in the absolute vision of the divine and so on and so forth. Those are recognized as being both terrifying and attractive. And, and it's the same, it, it repels and it attracts because it's like your greatest hope and it's your greatest fear. And we're just stuck like that. I guess that's my point. Hope I'm not getting too wordy. It's that's part of this condition of feeling like we're separate. It's given to you, and then you're like, I have the problem of myself. What am I supposed to do? There's that line from Miguel de Unamuno. He says, Consciousness is a disease. Mm -hmm. In large part, that's to me what he's talking about. When you are awake as this self, everything is a threat to it. And yet your greatest fulfillment lies on the other side of it. Yeah. I mean, I <clears throat> I th there's so many places to go with that. I think maybe to start, we'll start with it on a sort of individual field where 
we talk about someone that's had a shattering experience. This is something I've thought about a lot. And you spoke about when you were on weird studies talking about John Horgan, the um, sort of uh, what we even call him science journalist, philosopher, mm-hmm. critic, mm-hmm. I don't know, <laughs> but he had this, you know, the, this experience, uh, these shattering experiences um, to the conditions of sort of lawfulness. That's a very, um, that that's something that happens in horror all the time. And in fact, so much of horror plays around that. Um, and that's something I've talked about on the show before is like so much horror plays around the tension of belief um, in an experience that others are reporting, but like no one else believes in, you know, oh, there's a werewolf. There's no such thing as werewolves, you know, until then, it, you know, you see it. And then you're the one telling everybody, you know, you're the boy crying werewolf. And then, but that happens to people, you know, all the time. There's a book of uh, anthropology essays, I think, called Being Change, which is all about these shocking experiences that happen to anthropologists when they're doing ethnographic work that they can't deny. And they're like, well, now I have to kind of rearrange how I see reality. That book is called Being Change because they actually had decided to allow it in, in a way. But mostly people will have an experience like that and they'll try to smooth it over by compartmentalizing it somehow or just kind of not even thinking about it. And I've seen this with plenty of people I know. They'll tell me some <laughs> bonkers thing happened and they'll be like, yeah, anyway. And then, you know, it's on to the next thing. And I'm like, well, don't you want to go there? Like if you look at the fact that you saw a UFO or a ghost or whatever it is, because you're often paranormal experiences, the stuff of horror movies, Um would you not then begin to rearrange how you view reality? But like what I find happening very often is this kind of teetering on, well, I I don't know. I just, I just, I don't really think about it too much. And I think we could maybe say that that's just a defense mechanism, but I don't want to, I don't want to merely dismiss it as a defense mechanism. It probably is a lot of times I'm sure um, because shattering information is shattering. But if, if it's uh, something that's not just a defense mechanism, I want to think about what else is going on there. And I have a few ideas about it, but um, I'm sure you've probably encountered this in other people as well. I mean, you, you've really looked into some of the shattering experiences you had with sleep paralysis and all that kind of stuff, but I'm sure you've met other people who have had experiences like that, that just kind of just let it go, you know, <laughs> to really think into it or think about it. And I want to talk about why that is because that is not so much a feature of horror. I don't think in the way that the person who's, traumatized or shaken or shattered by seeing the thing that exists outside of lawfulness is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I interviewed for my former blog, The Teeming Brain, I interviewed uh, Dr. James Fadiman a few oh, years yeah. ago. You know, he's the he's the, one of the pioneers in psychedelic research. Everyone talks about microdosing these days. He's actually the guy who uh, originally had that idea, you know, originally wrote about that. And uh, in, uh, it was a pretty wide-ranging, diffuse conversation that we had. And um, we started talking about that at one point. And we were talking about uh, psychedelics and entity encounters and just other things. And uh, he made the point. He said, um, I am an actual empiricist. He said, I don't think we should, on principle, exclude anything from the range of our experience or from the uh, the interpretations that we make simply based on prepackaged philosophical 
principles or prejudices or presuppositions. You know, he said, I'm going to take whatever it is that I and other people actually encounter and experience, whether it's in, uh, when, when they're, when they're uh, under the influence of a psychedelic substance or, or in any other context, and in some way allow that into my map of reality of what humans can experience and also therefore uh, in some way at some level of ontological validity. It's on the map. And like you said, so many people, when they encounter something, uh, you could call it what I was saying using a few minutes ago with the, the burger term, right? It, it's it's a, a rip in the sacred canopy. Mm. It's a, an anomic something, an anomaly. They, like you say, they want to write it out. They don't want to write it out, not write it out, write it out on the map. And um, that goes back to me just to the, to the fear of the, that I think is embedded in being human. I don't know why some people are turned more toward openness and some people are more closed up, but um, it helps yeah. to have a comfortable map, right? It's all of us to some, to a greater or lesser degree want to have mm. a sense of understanding. Some <laughs> of us are less adventurous. Well, I, it's, it's interesting because I can go sort of either way on it, right? Because it, in some ways, <laughs> Um, there's, there's ways in which horror and narratives play on, on that kind of doubt belief thing that I was talking about before, but there's also like curiosity horror. Um, I mean, the, the easiest way to describe this is just, you know, the person in the audience at the movie screaming, don't go in there. Why would you go in there when, you know, you know, but maybe a more sort of, uh, profound example of it would be David Lynch movies where, in every David Lynch movie, really, that I and and Twin Peaks as well, there's people who exist on this level and and beings that exist on this level of sort of knowing reality in a certain way. And anybody that is curious or goes to investigate that gets like fucked up. <laughs> so they get like really messed up out of curiosity, which in some ways is like the real. Um, is the real opposite of doubt, not, you know, not certainty exactly because like uh, doubt is something that just kind of occurs or happens, but curiosity is something that you actually even follow. It almost takes more of an, you know, an opposite uh, route than doubt does. And so I think, you know, I could see horror happening to, you know, these, these, this horror mood happening to anybody. um, Mm -hmm. And I, whether they're doubtful, whether they're shattered by the experience or whether they compartmentalize it. Because I guess the people that compartmentalize it are probably more, <laughs> I'm talking about characters, of course, but maybe in our own lives as well, are more susceptible to just living in the conditions of cosmic horror, you know, like, uh, and maybe that's a matrixy thing as well. But do you see what I mean? It's like, it's like, uh, if I go investigate, then I'm going to have to experience this as an individual. But if I don't investigate, I can just let it be what the universe is. And yeah, everybody's screwed and it's horrible things are happening to everybody, but I've got a barbecue to run here. So that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. It is. And as you, I, this may not be picking up right from where you were talking, as you were talking, my mind was running through, uh, went from Lynch to like some things that are, uh, stories that are in the classic English language cosmic horror tradition, like uh, like um, Algernon Blackwood's story, where the title almost says it all, The Man Who Found Out. 
or, or you have, or you have famously right in the same in the same line, you have uh, you have uh, Arthur Mackin and the great mm-hmm. God Pan. Yeah, yeah. That whole thing is about this longing to see beyond the veil and the scientific experiment that's done to do so to expand human perception. And yet, what we see is a monstrous horror that lies behind the veil of normal perception. Why did we ever want to pull that veil aside? The theme of forbidden knowledge. It's all classic, but still, when you go read that story. Mm-hmm it still gets under people's skin because it really is a horrific horror. And the fact that it's that uh, Mackin was so savvy that he's, he's titling it the great God pan and using that idea of this force that just lies behind the natural world. That's solid stuff. You know, we're all encountering that all the time. And some of us are more sensitive to it than others. There's that, I keep going, I'm going to probably keep speaking in, in, in the line of these classic English language writers, you know, Lovecraft, uh, I forget the wording, but he said in supernatural horror literature that the, uh, the uh, temperament or the cast of mind or the personality type that is actually drawn to uh, ask questions like this and to seek to see beyond the veil and therefore to be sensitive to weird supernatural horror fiction is probably pretty rare. Most people like to have these things settled. And then even the, even those who want to do it, I think, I think you're going to have, you might have uh, one in a, and a hundred people, you know, who might be really, really drawn to this kind of thing as more than just entertainment, that it's really affecting them. And then maybe you're going to have one in a thousand or less for whom it becomes this real piercing matter that gets under their skin and they can't get away from it. And it starts to uh, affect their perception of themselves and the world and not just be a matter of fiction, escape the bounds of fiction and impact their life. That's kind of been what's happened to me, but that was because of what you mentioned earlier and what I've talked about before on weird studies and elsewhere, my uh, sleep paralysis experiences, which had the full-blown hypnagogic visions that destabilized my ontological sense of things. That's a whole other conversation, or maybe it's part of this conversation. Yeah. Maybe we'll go into some of that. Um, I mean, I'm just then thinking it's like the pursuit of, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Mackin because that's that type of story where yes, like the idea is like the desire to know inside the pursuit of knowledge is in fact, the origin of the horror that occurs to you is so like we were talking about Lynch, but I love that you link those two together because we see that as such a virtue. I mean, that is the, that is like the premise of a lot of Western civilization is this Aristotelian idea that you have knowledge and you get more knowledge and that's great. And then you get even better knowledge and that's better than what happened before, you know, and, you know, Freud's sort of disruption of that was like, no, no, it's not about that. It's actually just about what our desires, what we want and what we're repulsed by and how we want what we're repulsed by and how we enjoy it all and so on and so forth. But the idea <laughs> that desire to know is the wrong move. Again, that's evoked by someone saying, don't go in there. And we can laugh at that all we want. But then, <clears throat> you know, I'm sure people, you know, here listening to this might think about times when they wanted to look through their partner's texts um, to see who was texting them, what was going on. Was there someone that shouldn't have been in that thread? And all the consequences that you know, happen, even if there's nothing there, (laughs) you've still crossed a threshold into a new kind of world where you've done this thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in some ways, weirdly then, (laughs) the, uh, 
some of these horror stories we're talking about is just kind of the invasion of the privacy of the gods. You know, what are you doing here? Why are you looking at my texts? Why are you looking at me? You should be in there doing your thing and I should be living my weird cosmic life. And the minute you breach that there's consequences. <laughs> That's what, yeah, there are horrors large and small. I love the text example that I, I can honestly, I, somebody should write a story. Maybe they have, someone should write a story about a person who ends up having a psychological breakdown and tumbling over into a pit of existential horror simply because they realized during and after the fact that they were somebody who could actually read someone else's texts. They could read their girlfriends or their boyfriend's texts. They never thought that of themselves and it totally shoots their entire worldview. Mm -hmm. But honestly, that's, that is a profound point. You know, there's the thing in Zen to go back to the idea of these things being linked to the, the scariness or the desirability of uh, enlightenment or call it what you will, where, um, you know, a Zen master will do something just all of a sudden extremely childishly selfish or something, you know, like someone will have something that they want and they just reach out and grab it from them, just like a kid, you know, all the crazy wisdom things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen that framed before. I've never studied Zen formally. I've had a lot of friends who have, I've read endless books on Zen. I've, you know, practiced the Zazen meditation on my own. Um, there are, some pretty cogent writings that talk about uh, someone who's really awakened in that way, being someone who from time to time will just give into one of these things because, or do it as a demonstration or both. They give into it and they do it deliberately because, you know, that's part of being human. You might just rip something out of someone's hands because you as this particular ego wanted it. That's part of reality. You might read your partner's texts and then feel mm -hmm. like an absolute uh, piece of trash uh, and, but then you have to somehow account for that in your view of the world and yourself or else have the imp of the perverse, you might say, mm. become this demon that's tormenting you. There's, the horror does have these different scales that it operates at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so I want to maybe go back to something you said uh, about that torn canopy um, because I remember I talked with um, an anthropologist, Marilyn Strathern. She gave a presentation on the unknown. It was a great, oh, it was so great. Um, <laughs> and she just kind of demonstrated very patiently through various examples how we always form the unknown out of the known. So even if we think of something as unknown, it's because we already know things. And mm -hmm. I went up to her afterwards and I said, you know, I agree that this happens a lot of times, but then there are other times where these kinds of voids, we encounter these voids and we don't know what to do with them. Like I once was standing on a corner in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I saw a car backing up in its driveway and I saw this blackness underneath the car and it was moving with the car. And I couldn't, my mind was scrambling so hard and it could not, paint fix the picture of what had happened until the car stopped i realized i began to shout i was like stop the car stop the car it, there was a black labrador that had been sleeping under the car and had been kind of pinned and was rolling back with it but i couldn't mm -hmm. form the actual picture of what had happened until it like it, it seemed like it lasted forever but it must have just lasted for seconds but the way that time even was distorted and sucked into that void of not being able to actually perceive 
really even, you know, pull together what was happening, it seemed like an eternity. And I think there are these, yes, yeah, so there are the moments of encountering the unknown. And then there's moments also of, you know, and, and forming that out of what you know. And then there's also these moments of, I actually cannot pull together what's being seen here. Like I said, that only lasted for a few seconds at most for me. I can't imagine what that must be like if it lasts for hours or a day or a year, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Time would almost become meaningless if you weren't surrounded by spatial and temporal clues of, you know, and sensory clues of what you were encountering. It's very true. Remember those magic eye pictures? that yeah. were popular in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. I've referred to those before. Like that's an, those things right there are a perfect, a perfect embodied metaphor of some of this. Like you're looking at something and then you're not seeing everything that's there, you know? And then suddenly it, there's this shift and there's a picture behind the picture. Kind of the same thing like you're talking about. There's this undifferentiated field of some horrible thing happening to a Labrador, right? And then, whoa. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. These little moments happen in everyday life, just like that one you described where you, where something, something pops up. You haven't had the time to project your perceptual or cognitive interpretive grid on it, either consciously or automatically. And uh, there it is kind of raw reality. And think about that. What would uh, in, in one, one level, what happened there was just, some it wasn't a discrete event right the thing that you saw it was just part of the endless happening that's always been happening since the cosmos was born in another sense because you are this individual with this membrane or at least this notional individual with this membrane of inner and outer that separates you you could witness it and could actually self-consciously recognize that there was something some discrete event although it's artificially discrete going on that took a moment for you to interpret what was happening. This goes pretty deep, but I think it's all involved in everything that we're, everything that we're talking about. That's what I, I don't want to, I don't want to just go back to my sleep paralysis experience. No, I was going to bring you back them. there. So that's, I was going to bring okay, you back. Okay. I was going to say that. Say, yeah. But go ahead, go ahead and say, yeah. Well, no, thanks. I just, that was my, the first time it happened. I had a few minor sleep paralysis experiences, maybe uh, in high school and college. And then it was not long after college in the early nineties that this first major one hit and I was just completely immersed in it. And, uh, mm -hmm. I was, I, I, uh, it actually, I, I, I thought I was dreaming, you know, and I, and I was dreaming. That was strange with, so with lying on the basement floor with my wife beside me. And then this figure standing over us and then I was paralyzed and there was this absolute horror. And then I woke up. And I, I mean, it was like you described with the dog, what's happening. I'm in this total moment of disorientation, but it was also, uh, there was just, I was awash in horror. It's just like, it was there. That was part of what I was perceiving, almost like I was separate from it. And then I realized I'm lying in bed, waking up, can't move. And the same thing is standing over us, this sort of demonic shadow like figure. And, uh, then my wife is hitting me and yelling and, you know, it's like, she's seeing it too. Like those moments in John Carpenter movies where you wake up and then you really wake up and realize <laughs> you woke up into a dream, you know, and then you really wake up. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of one of my life's 
most memorable encounters with what you're talking about. How do you, what, what's happening here? It was all just a wash over me. And, the, and a sense of, a sense of horror was, it was partly within me and partly just this thing that I was perceiving and I couldn't make sense of it. Didn't know what was going on. Add a few more of those on over a span of years and uh, kind of started to, I guess you could say it ripped open the membrane of me, ripped open the mm. sacred canopy. Uh, I realized that you can't make all, you, it's hard to make judgments about what's real and what's not when you yourself are the subject who's, you can't escape your own subjectivity, but you're trying to stand outside of it, making judgments about what's real and what's not, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely want to talk about that too. Um, I, I wonder when you saw it, this is where I was going to go with it. Um, so I'm glad you gave the background of it for people listening, but when you saw it, I just have two questions. One is like how, maybe three, how did you theorize about it in the first place? So after the first time it happened, how did you begin to form a theory of what happened? So not necessarily like, uh, just what was that process of theory making about what happened? Like, and then also why, did you feel horror? Now I realize that's an unfair question in a way. It's like, well, the emotion just kind of struck you, but mm -hmm. it, it's an interesting <laughs> thing about these experiences is that, you know, mostly people will report this feeling of, of horror. Now I have a friend who over time began to have these experiences and began to just sort of name it and be like, fine, whatever, you know, kind of, Oh, there it is again. But, um, but still the initial response was horror. And then I think maybe if there's a third question, I would wonder how you talked to your wife about it after it happened. How did you report to the other person? Um, yep. Those are good questions. Uh, the, the initial meaning making move was for me to just sort of automatically frame it as a, as a, a nightmare that I had had. Although uh, I did know that it wasn't like any nightmare I had ever had <laughs> because I had been, I had, I had perceived myself to be awake and seeing this thing with my actual physical eyes, not as a dream. Um, so there was that. And uh, it, that, that goes back to what you were talking about, what we were talking about, about people who just sort of try to close the hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a compartmentalization happening. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I, comp I, I did compartmentalize it as, uh, a really, really, really intense nightmare. Mm. And then um, mm. that's kind of how I told it to my wife as well, saying, she said, what had been happening? Because I'd been trying to uh, scream, right. making this strangled noise, you know, and kind of shuddering. And it was, it was a dream. Well, when it happened again, and then again, and then two or three or four or eight or 10 more times over a span of, of, uh, of months and years, and sometimes with me deciding uh, I'm going to go sleep on the couch because maybe this is going to be a bad night, you know, mm. uh, I was unable to just shut it off as much. But one, one, I guess you could say one compartment that I put it into, it was even as I went about daily life, even as I was going about early career, post-college, uh, family man and, and job holder and all that stuff, uh, I thought I was going crazy. Mm. Literally, I literally had this thought and this fear that I had come unhinged and that I was experiencing dreadful hallucinations. And that became a source of that became a source of considerable emotional and cognitive anguish. And I, but, but it, part of that was because I didn't have a category to put it in. You know, I hadn't heard the term sleep paralysis, which everyone 
knows. It's become kind of trendy over the past 15 years or so. Uh, documentaries about it, horror movies explicitly based on it. I came across the name David Hufford. I came across his book, The Terror That Comes in the Night, mm -hmm. an experience-centered study of uh, nocturnal assault phenomena. I believe that's what it's the subtitle is. He's the folklorist who kind of brought this experience back into modern consciousness. Oh, suddenly I had a container. It was part of my yeah. part of my nomos, you know. But as but why I should have felt horror, I never I can't explain that because it was as I say, it was as if it was part of the experience itself, although I know intellectually speaking that it had to be a subconscious, unconscious function of me as an individual viewing this kind of undoing of myself as horrible. Because the thing that, that you know, when you're, you know, when you're in a dream or a nightmare, any kind of dream, meanings are just there. You have these nonverbal knowings, you know, you, you may even have false memories that you, you, you have a false memory. This, this all happened before I remember a past to it. Part of what was implanted in that first major sleep paralysis experience for me was the sense, just the knowledge that this thing, the experience that this uh, human shaped hole in the room was sucking me into it and and that and that it was annihilating me it was like antimatter to me it was the anti-mat to my identity so uh that was the horror was the horror of annihilation into whatever this thing was in later years i have tried to do a little psychoanalysis on myself or Jungian analysis on myself or, you know, James Hillman analysis on myself and sort of mm -hmm. viewed that as maybe a missed opportunity. If I had been someone else at a different point, who knows, that could have been some kind of passport mm -hmm. to uh, absolute spiritual enlightenment, transcendence of self. You remember that line in Jacob's Ladder where Danny Aiello tells, uh, what's his name? The actor, you know, uh, is it Tony uh, Robbins, uh, isn't it? Playing Jacob, Tim, you know, Robin, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. That's yeah. horrible. Tony Robbins. Good God. What am I talking about? <laughs> Tim Robbins is not a motivational speaker. Uh, anyway, it tells Tim Robbins uh, that the the about. He says, "Remember, remember Meister Eckhart, you know, who said that if you if you are uh, clinging to your life, then these things that that are coming to tear it away are going to appear like demons, you know. But it, but if you are if you're confident uh, and if you're in the right place, I forget what the exact line is, but you recognize them as angels who are taking away." all your suffering. I think I, I went, I saw that movie probably two, three, four years, three or four years before this experience happened. Uh, maybe that was playing unconsciously in the back of my mind. I experienced it as a horrific demon. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think it's like, it's a nice line from the movie in a way, but then also we have lots of people who have done tons of, you know, research, personal and meditative and spiritual in these realms and they don't say that <laughs> you know like swedenborg basically said something that was like you know look if it's if it's bad like if it's making you feel bad it's not an angel so like the angel will only come to sort of give you this kind of feel now look we don't have to i, I know there's a lot in your own writing about the sort of ambiguity of the feeling of angels but it, you know maybe i'll just sort of yeah again bring it back to you my own differentiated experiences, I'll try to go through them really quickly, but like, you know, when I was a little boy, I was playing in the backyard and I said the name of a devil that I read in one of my brother's Dungeons and Dragons books. And I heard this like unearthly, like roar rise up behind me. And I ran in the house screaming and crying. That's very different than the time when I saw 
when I encountered what was really an angel in the living room of my apartment in San Francisco, that's very different than when I encountered something that felt like it was showing me that everything I believed in religiously or spiritually up to that point in my life had been this kind of sinister lie versus the love I felt from other, you know, other presences or whatever. And before I, you know, go on, I don't want everybody that's listening to just (laughs) accept that all these things, you know, I I don't need you to accept my worldview and, or, or that these kinds of crazy presences are all around me. And I don't mean, I don't need anybody accept that just to say that maybe we've had experiences in our own lives Uh, all of us where certain things bring along with them certain feelings and, you know, it could be a person, it could be a place that you, you know, just don't want to go to because you're getting that kind of vibe and that resonance. And even if you go into it and everything's fine, you know, you go into an abandoned building and everything's fine. Still like you'll have that feeling about another abandoned building or another place somewhere else. So it's just to say that, you know, on the one hand, maybe you could transmute the experiences of those sleep paralysis beings, but on the other hand, um, it, you know, different experiences with different uh, beings that you might encounter would bring different feelings like to begin with. And right. there might be something, if it's not the truth, if it's not the essential truth that those beings are horrific, at least there's a distinction amongst them that's like, well, those ones, maybe they're not horrible, but it feels pretty bad. And these ones, it feels pretty good. Maybe it's not the best thing for me, but it feels okay. You know, and that distinction and differentiation, I think also does matter and tell us something, you know? I think you're right. I think you're right. And, 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 uh, you know, you're talking about when you, when you were issuing that kind of disclaimer, you know, saying, I'm not saying that everybody has to believe what Connor believes when, Mm -hmm. when I say these things, but they were, part of your experience, mm-hmm. right? They're part of the fund of data that has been presented to you from your own experience. Right. The fact that things happen all the time mm-hmm. and individual people can tell you this and sociological studies over and over and including ones conducted just in the past two, three, five, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. well-known ones find that what are considered to be uh, anomalous experiences, supernatural experiences have continued to happen this fact that they have continued to happen in the modern technological post-enlightenment rational scientific world with equal frequency and equal distribution, it seems like, uh, uh, as they happened before that in pre-enlightenment period, tells you that it's a fundamental part and inescapable part of just the human experience. When you realize that, it calls into question, if there's somebody who's sensitive enough, your own presuppositions, your own interpretive grid. Some people are inclined to just dismiss such things. Other people are inclined to perhaps be too uh, woo-ish, you know, too gullible towards such things. But even those judgments that I'm making about too this or too that are based on <laughs> that point that I have. The, the whole yeah. point, the whole point, is that when something like this happens, uh, it throws up right in your face the fact that the picture that we're making of the world and the assumptions that we have going on about it and the way we interpret anything that comes along, whether it's seemingly mundane from your point of view or seemingly extraordinary from your point of view, all hinge on largely unconscious presuppositions. And it brings those forward. And you say, why would I instantly try to explain this thing away? 
but this other thing I want to count as part of the world, or why would I want to explain it in this particular manner and not this other manner? Um, that's where I think to go back to our presiding subject of, of uh, horror in entertainment and art and as an existential experience, it's so valuable. It's not the only way to it, mm. but as you have pointed out in some of your previous uh, insightful episodes, it inherently raises the question of these things. Remember, remember how Scott Derrickson, I think this was right after uh, Emily Rose came out. Mm. There's that quote from him in an interview where he said, he thinks that, that uh, supernatural horror is the, the, uh, the medium or the artistic form par excellence for yeah. talking about these things, because it's just built into it. It's like, it is interrogating fundamental matters and questions of what's real and what's not and mm -hmm. what's good and what's evil. I totally agree. Yeah. I think, I think it's, um, you know, if I ever, would have obviously I don't have a problem with horror. I agree with that statement that it's it's one of the most vital and important ways to express truth and and question. Um, but it, if I have one critique, it's that maybe we don't make ourselves ready for it enough. That um, and that that's not really a critique of horror even itself, but just that um you know, if we're having these differentiated experiences in life, but also when we look at horror, we're not uh, always ready to try to bring them in and try to look at them and think about them and encounter them. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, let me see if I can give two examples, one in your fiction and the fiction that you're, I think, really interested in and then maybe one from life is like if we're not ready for horror in a sort of way we can read cosmic horror we could read oh gosh i'm gonna forget the name of the legati story the darkness oh what's it the called? shadow the darkness yes yeah where the life force itself is evil <laughs> i mean that the story really messed me up for a while where like actually what is making us live is an evilness, you know, not just an evil God, like in, um, which is a great story. I have no mouth and I must scream by Harlan Ellison. It's not just something controlling all our movements, but actually who we are as livingness is, is evil. And then, or, or or Lovecraft, or we could read The God of Foulness or whatever and say to ourselves, uh, mere, merely say, that must be how things really are. It's not, it's not that that couldn't be possible, but the, the fact is I view all of you, the three of you who I've mentioned there, asking the question, well, what, what if this, so we can push on and 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 think about and evaluate what the possibilities are and how we as human beings can maybe uh, encounter that fear and question in a way that makes sense to being human. So I'm sorry, I'm going to go on for one more minute and then I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Please go okay, ahead. Good. <laughs> so that's one way in which I think we are not necessarily ready. It's like we can look into it and then be like, oh, that must be how it is. And of course, you see that with people that uh you know 
like myself when I was a kid, got that paperback copy of the Necronomicon and was like, oh, this is a real book. And, you know, it, it, like I really got pulled into this idea of the mythos. Um, or, you know, another way is like maybe in, I don't like this term, but real world, because fiction is part of the real world and these questions are part of the real world, but where we, um, we focus on certain images of horrific things at the expense of really looking at others. So like what I have in mind here is people that have been, have lost their shit for <laughs> years now. And it just seems to be getting amplified about uh, ri ritual abuse and like child sex trafficking whatever we think the reality claims of some of that stuff is or isn't those people are very rarely ever talk about drone strikes on villages <laughs> killing kids and in fact for me that is actually more evil not the not necessarily the drone strike it's like oh well kill a kid this way or kill a kid that way but that they've tacitly accepted forms of killing kids that are highly ritualized and highly incorporated into the way that we live in the world in a way that it hides them in plain sight. Whereas the only examples I get paid attention to are these ones that might seem to be the most supernatural, crazy, over-the-top versions of things. And so I feel like horror can help us um, understand a bit more but I also think we have to make ourselves ready to encounter horror. And I don't think uh, we're necessarily living up to that responsibility. So a, it's a funny thing, you know, when people meet me, they think I'm a generally kind of cheery, maybe curmudgeonly, but cheery person. And, you know, I write these horrible things and it's probably the same for David Lynch. You know, it's like he mm -hmm. spends most of his time trying to make the world a place where people can meditate and be happier and enjoy art and creating and all that and living out their karma and then makes the darkest art possible. And I hope that that's what we achieve also as people consume and look at horrors, like and that relationship between being and seeing that darkness uh, mm -hmm. can be explored more and not just one side of it. As you were talking, um, I thought of a line from Ligotti that has stayed with me ever since I first read it. And it's not from any story he wrote. It's from uh, his essay, The Consolations of Horror. You know that most people, most of us first read it when it was included as the introduction to uh, The Nightmare Factory, you know, his omnibus collection. I've quoted it over and over, and it's almost like a mantra to me because it applies. It's interesting. It is so well said, and it's such a subtle, wonderful point. And it also applies to everything, not just horror. Mm. But he spends that essay uh, discussing what horror is for, mm. why people tr engage with fictional and artistic representations of horror. And he addresses one by one and kind of dispenses with the various mm. common explanations. There's the, the idea of just a, a fun house or a roller coaster ride, pure entertainment. There's the idea of catharsis, speaking of... Aristotle, you know, going back to his idea of art. And, the, and he points out these all are, are true in their own way, but they're, but they all come up short. They don't really ultimately explain it. And at the end, he gives his own answer. And he says, in the end, and this is a very close paraphrase. It's not the exact wording, but it's very close. He says, in the end, the one and the only consolation of horror 
is simply that you get to see that someone else has shared your experiences and that they have created from these experiences a work of art that communicates to you and that, and he does, he puts in this particular proviso, like it or not, you are uh, equipped to respond to and to understand. And I noticed when I first read that, that it said everything I had ever wanted to say about what I was responding to when I was so drawn to horror fiction. And uh, that it also explained a lot about some of the more uh, uh, everyday things about horror, like what you're talking about, you know, to hear, to hear someone say something about the issue of the drone strikes, for example, or whether or not people who are too focused on things like satanic ritual abuse have somehow, you know, done this horrific thing of their own where they've uh, sort of implicitly accepted as okay, this other horror, it kind of helped me to understand why it is that it speaks to me so much when people find these things and articulate them. And I go, yeah, you know, I feel a strong room. They're seeing this thing too. But beyond that, it doesn't just apply to horror, does it? Doesn't it apply to any art form? Mm. The, the consolation of any art form is that you, you, someone is, you see that someone has made a work of art that communicates to you uh, the fact they've seen and experienced what you have. You're not alone. I just published a couple of three days ago in my newsletter, a piece I titled the, the, uh, the writer's paradox. And the whole thing was simply about the fact that the most private is actually the most universal. And that the only times that people really, really speak to other people in their writing or in their art is when they forget about trying to speak to other people and they communicate the most deepest, the most deep personal thing that seems like maybe no one else would understand. And it turns out, you know, hell, everyone understands. It's just no one ever says it. I think that's part of what we're getting at here. Yeah. Yeah. I love all that. I mean, I think <clears throat> I would maybe add something um, to what Lukati says there and tie it in with something you've written uh, or noted in your journals where I know this is an ontological sort of base thing, but I would just say, you know, for horror, horror can actually contain evil in a way that nothing else can evil can't really be contained and that yeah, i talked about this on my episode about the spiritual life of horror where you know evil spills out everywhere else we see it it um you either have to respond to it morally if you see something evil happening in front of you or you have to accept evil but when you see evil in horror it, it allows you because it's art you know, it's, it's, it's not a roller coaster. Um, it's not like a thrill ride. It's something that's contained in a way that we can actually begin to ready ourselves um, for and, and understand um, what's happening with evil more and evil to the farthest corners of the galaxy as you uh, push on it, you push it there. I mean, the idea that uh, anything that we take for granted as good can be inverted and changed and seen as evil is something that horror offers and particularly yours. So I think for me, it's a huge gift in that, in that way. It reminds me of the fact that, you know, mostly when we encounter evil, we're not ready for it with horror. 
we feel like we can't handle it yet we handle it which is something that you've just said in in other words we we feel like it's unendurable and yet we can do it i mean think of anybody that's listening think of the most horrific movie or you've ever seen book you've ever read whatever and you were able to deal with it in one way or another and i think that that's a contained lesson of what happens to us when we encounter our lives and God and spiritual development. You tease this out by quoting um, Oswald Chambers, the late 20th or the late 19th, early 20th century theologian, Scottish theologian, who said, God does not ask us to do the thing that is easy to us naturally. He only asks us to do the thing that we are perfectly fitted to do by grace. And the cross will always come along that line. The idea that actually, <laughs> uh, as a, a friend of mine who's a reverend said to me, it's like, God only gives me what he knows I can't handle. That in fact, uh, everything <laughs> that comes to me from God really in developmental sense will be something that is absolutely beyond me. And the only thing I can do then is turn to grace. And I do think horror in some ways is a kind of picturing of that process in minor. It's like, I go to see the horrible, horrific thing, and then I have to find my way of coping with it. And there are all sorts of ways of doing it. The compartmentalization one is I think the lowest hanging fruit. There are lots of other ways to do it, but maybe that's one way until you know you can deal with it. You know, uh, a lot of people are familiar with Thomas Ligotti's um, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Mm. And most most English speakers, I think, most English readers like me, uh, were not familiar with the uh, Norwegian philosopher uh, Zapfi. I believe that's how we say it, you know, until, until Tom brought it to our attention, right? And uh, he was someone who was a cheerful, he was like a, a mountaineer and sort of a cheerful dude who also believed that existence was absolutely awful <laughs> and, and spent his life writing all about it. And he came up with a lot of ways, which Tom summarizes, that people... I don't think he used the word compartmentalize it, but like we've been saying, but that's exactly what he said. Mm. If you've read the conspiracy against the human race, you know what I'm talking about. He says that he had these, had these, this list of things that we do, you know, we, we, we deflect, we distract ourselves, this, that, and the other. And in fact, if you don't do any of those, what you're left with is the stark staring realization that existence is awful. It's uh, the, the life is something that should not have happened. Basically the, the, the whole antinatalist uh, position, you know, However you feel about that, it is true, it is true that we all reach places of uh, weariness and, and uh, world weariness and self-disgust and world disgust and all this stuff sometimes, and sometimes we reach places of horror. And it's also not just a cliche to say that this ultimately boils down to the fact that we know we're going to die, because that is tied into what we've been talking about here this membrane between yourself and the world, it is ultimately uh, temporary. And to say that it's temporary, if we want to get all Vedantic Hindu about it, is to say that it's not real because only things that are permanent and lasting are things that are ultimately real. This dream experience, this projected experience of being an individual is coming to an end, mm -hmm. inevitably. And that means that your horizon is going to be breached. You know, may happen fast. You might be the victim of a violent death, whether intentional or accidental. You might have a long drawn out disease. You might just live a quote unquote normal life, which I think is actually not all that normal, statistically speaking. 
and just get old and wear out and die. However it happens, you're on the way out of here. It sounds like a cliche. From the minute you're born, you're dying. I think uh, Iron Maiden even says that at one point on their seventh son of a seventh son album. You know, we all know it. But uh, it's 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 happening. It's in the background. And the great spiritual wisdom that you have from a lot of enlightenment-based traditions is to die before you die. Right. That's what's necessary is to die, to just to let go. doesn't mean that suddenly you just disappear into light, but it does mean that somewhere, somehow within yourself, you've unlocked the ability to let go and realize that you're living, you're dying, it's all the same. You are this form that has arisen, this form that will go away. And it's not even the separate form. It's just the wave on the ocean. The wave is nothing but the ocean. I don't know how much many people tie this to horror, but I think if the wave became self-aware, it's it would be possible for it to experience horror at being this separate thing, even it's horror, mm. just the ocean. <laughs> yeah. My counterpoint immediately comes up against that, which is phantasm, where the guy's like, you think when you die, you go to heaven or hell, but you come to us. I, by the way, I, I, die, have, I have Angus Scrim in my, I can yeah. just play that scene in my head right now. You just become a worker. It's so <laughs> awful. You die and you go to work. <laughs> but even that could, but, but and it's a great vision, but I love, yeah. I love those movies. I love the vision behind them. Phantasm one and two, especially just yeah, like uh, canon, you know? Uh, but even that, which really, I love yeah. the, the cosmicism and the cosmic horror of it in a wider sense. Maybe some people don't follow me here. I'm a thoroughgoing non-dualist. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just the, 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 the position that has seized me over the years, uh, is pretty much, you know, your Rupert Spira, like Eckhart Tolle, like Shunru Suzuki, like the, uh, awakening type position, which I won't mm -hmm. say that I've, I'm an enlightened awakened person. It's the only thing that makes sense anymore. You're this, you, you are this virtual being, you're this coalescence and anything that could be like a horror scenario that you would see in this afterlife of these horrible crushed dwarf remnants of what were once people working and being enslaved to the tall man and so on. <laughs> that itself would just be a dream. It's like another Bardo and, 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 and Bardo's yeah. may be horrible when you're experiencing them, but it goes back to the question, who are you, who's experiencing them? It's all a projection within the one self, the one mind, the ground of being, you know, the, the, the universal movie screen that is consciousness. Some people think that's horrible. They think it means that everything means nothing. That's where you reach that Alice in Wonderland flip and go, actually, uh, everything means everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I would articulate it in that way, but I definitely feel a lot of resonance with what you've said. And I think that it's, <clears throat> That that's, you know, what I think whenever people talk about UFOs, I'm like, well, I don't really care if they're aliens, if we're not like actually investigating the spiritual, like it, it won't matter if aliens like show up here or not, if we don't understand the spiritual reality of being human. So who cares, you know? That's and I, <laughs> I mean, I, obviously it would be interesting to me. I don't mean to be that flippant about it. And like, it would probably fuck up my life in some way or another, but, um, sure. but, I but, do, but, but do they, what, what, what evidence of mechanical craft and actual biological aliens and so on answer all these uh, burning philosophical existential questions. No, it would yeah. be one more one more thing in the in the catalog just, of we've cataloged. Yeah, just kicking the can down the road, you know, like yeah. kicking the UFO down the road till we figure out. But I think that the 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 interesting uh, question then <laughs> for me when you say this, because I've heard you say something like that before, but it it has this kind of contrast to something which is 
disturbed you, which also really disturbs me, which is you're writing about your students watching Titanic or one of your students watching Titanic. And, you know, the, the boat is going down and all the tables are flipping over and people are flying in the air. And like, all he seems to care about is the spectacle of it. Like, you're like, oh man, like, he can't get into the horror of what's happening. Is he not feeling the horror? And that to me is, it's a funny thing to be disturbed by when we're trying to say, well, actually maybe he knows, <laughs> maybe he's the one that actually has gotten it right. And our identification of the horror and worse longing for the other to feel the horror that we feel is our problem <laughs> and that maybe yeah. he's gotten this right thing, but you know, I don't think so. I don't think so, but it's a, it's a funny question to sort of pose because I know that too, people that don't like horror, um, they don't like, Oh, I don't like the way it feels. I don't like horror movies. I don't like being scared. I, I mean, that always like freaks me out. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And my, my boyfriend has sat through countless horror movies with me. He listened to me read my novel to him before it came out. I mean, he was, he's really endures a lot for someone who does not like horror movies. Um, and he just sort of goes on that journey with me. And that makes me so excited about him. Cause I'm like, wow, you're really doing like what, you should be doing like it actually bothers you more than it bothers me and you're going through it but the people that refuse it actually are the ones that really disturb me the most it's that's great that you caught that about my student by the way congratulations on your boyfriend being that way that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> and you're right one one can take the, exactly what you said that position that he's 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 feeling it uh, more than you as someone who who is I mean, you're not jaded necessarily but you are you are initiated, you are accustomed to this. And he's receiving all this like, ow, ooh, this is, <laughs> this is really horrible. You're, it's like, that's the point. Uh, but my student that I referred to uh, that you said, you know, who, who that I, I noticed that he was just kind of laughing and oh, you're saying awesome and all this as he's watching this, everybody dying as the Titanic is upending, you know? Uh, yeah, it struck me like, wow, how is, is he just, I know he's just watching a movie. But for me, it's a really involving movie. And I'm, I was feeling uh, every time I see that, I feel the horror of the people in that scene. Mm. He was just kind of thinking, oh, awesome. Cool. Now, granted, it could have been an, it was a high school student. It could have been an adolescent young person's defense mechanism or a way to appear cool to friends. Could have been any number of things. But assuming it was on the level, uh, one could say, yeah, he's like the laughing Buddha who just kind of recognizes all this is, <laughs> as nothing. He has, the, he has the ability to do that because he's not existing in the film world, you know. Mm. Uh, so he's in a position of relative enlightenment to that. Uh, it's also possible that uh, that he, he uh, well, you know, he wouldn't have reacted that way if he were actually there, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking about the matter, and I'm glad you brought it up, just brings me to the crucial point that... Uh, On the, you might say there's two different tracks, two different lines, or two, maybe more like two different levels, you would say. And on the level of involvement in the movie, I don't mean the Titanic, I mean the movie of your life, you know, and the movie of our collective existence. Uh, all this meaningfulness stuff is meaningful. And the sense of separation is real. And you really are tasked. It's like you're put in the middle of a, of a labyrinth when you're given a life and your task is to find your way out your whole life, your sense of independent existence is a question, a riddle, a conundrum. It's some kind of movie, could be a comedy, could be a romance, could be a tragedy, could be a horror movie, but your job is to figure it out. You're just given the question. Uh, and it can be extremely brutal, you know, on that level, it's all real and meaningfulness is real and all that stuff. It doesn't conflict with the fact 
But on another level, as I say, it's like you have the movie screen of universal consciousness of being that it's playing out on. And if you mix the levels, you have a problem. I just reminded myself in the, the Illuminatus trilogy that happens in the, in the third book. Have you, have you read Illuminatus? Yeah, it's, I mean, this has been one of the many times during this conversation where I was thinking something and then it came out of your mouth. Was that it? Were you so I've been enjoying the... the weird synchrony of this conversation. I haven't pointed it out the other times. Well, actually, okay. no, I did when I was like, oh, the sleep paralysis thing. I was just going to bring it to there. But okay. we're tracing, uh, we're working from some weird, similar mental map or we're hitting the tuning fork at the same time or something like that, because this has Sounds happened like actually multiple times for me. This conversation. Well then, okay. That's fascinating. So you were yeah. thinking the same thing I was thinking, right? It's, it's in Just the third... about to talk about Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. So go ahead. Well, there you go. In that, in the third book of Illuminatus, he and Bob Shea write that scene where they've encountered the, the, the crew that you're, everybody's familiar with on the, on the, the Hagbard Celine's yellow submarine has encountered uh, Leviathan, the great figure at the underneath the ocean, and uh, it's been years since I read it, but it's kind of like it's the, the 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 supernatural cosmic monstrous figure that sort of is at the center of the giant conspiracies that have been happening throughout uh, all these novels. And one of them has kind of waked up to uh, the spiritual non-dual view and is kind of blissed out. I forget which character it is, but he's just standing there like it just doesn't matter. We're all going to be killed. You know, it's just, he's, it's whatever. And another one says the line, you're wrong. You're not getting it. Yes. On one level, that's true, but you're confusing the levels right here in this story that we're in. And that was a big thing that Wilson was about. Right. And also yeah. in his Schrodinger's cat trilogy and all that characters becoming self-aware, breaking the fourth wall of the novel. They're like, no, we are actually going to die. It's going to be a horrible death for all of us here where we are mixing up of the levels. It's a bad idea. And it's not necessary. Mm. They're both true at the same time. Um, I don't know if you were suddenly flashing on Alan Watts, because that would be really spooky. But in his book, <laughs> in <know> his book <laughs> Beyond Theology, uh, The Art of Godmanship, you know, he, he, he makes a point that the whole book is him doing an experiment. He said that he, he didn't really think he'd ever seen anyone do. And he was really well read in the areas of theology and Christianity. He said, Christianity is always viewed as the the religion that one thinks of when one thinks of a separative point of view, mm -hmm. especially um, real extreme Protestantism. It's like, no, God is God. Human is human. World is world. We're all separate. Like that, like that situation that supposedly uh, D.T. Suzuki one time pointed out at a religious conference about this type of religion said, God against man, man against world, world against God. You know, world against man, all yeah, very yeah. funny religion. You know, and and uh, Will Wilson, <laughs> in this book points, uh, probably Watts points out in this book. He says, "This is the way it's framed." He said, "Well, what happens if we pursue that? Just take that as a given. What hap What is the end point of really diving deeply into something like that?" And he follows it through a series of brilliant chapters, saying, "This is what the implications are, hmm. and the implications are in the end, absolute one hundred percent total cosmic nightmare entrappedness." eternal, awful, and it all blows up. And you have to read the book to see how that works, but it, it essentially gets to the same point as, say, the Advaita Vedanta Hindu who who realizes yeah. it's yeah. total freedom of oneness. It's like it's, it's the greatest drama ever told, and it just happens to get to the same point by means of the absolute experience of the nightmare of being really entrapped in this, in, in this condition of separateness where everything is against everything, most especially everything is against you.
Well, this podcast is called Against Everyone with Connor and Beep. So I definitely, uh, <laughs> and it was duly named because on the one hand it was, you know, well, <clears throat> I mean, the podcast is almost seven years old now, but it's like, I'm against everyone's, you know, irritating takes and everything. But on the other hand, against also means pressed up against in an embrace, you know, it means that I'm, you know, pressed up against people um, ho- holding them. But I think, yeah, I mean, the way I, I think about, you know, that moment you brought up um, confronting Leviathan and we're going to die or whatever, maybe another way that I would think that through is thinking about my destiny and my own life in relation to that Advaita Vedanta Buddhist thing where everything is perfect, whatever. I'm not perfect. My destiny is perfect, but I'm not. And part of what I want to do is move into my destiny. And this sounds like completely weird because um, like if everything's perfect, then everything's predetermined, you know, it has, it's, uh, it has this kind of predeterminedness about it. Um, but I can, I can choose to surrender to the predetermined, but if you only, if you can really, really actually do that. And I don't, <laughs> and if you are actually doing that, you see, you know, in this kind of bodhisattva view, also the people that are suffering, and then it's your duty to actually help them step into their destiny as well. So it's not just a, it is a mixing up of the levels. And then there's also just this like, well, everybody's on these different levels, you know, it's your level and my level, you know, that mm-hmm. are getting sort of mixed together here. And how do we help each other out? I mean, yeah, I love all of what you said. Yeah, well, when I was thinking about Robert Anton Wilson before you <laughs> brought him up, I was thinking about how you described him once as sort of having, well, you described him as he describes himself. It's like he has these experiences where uh, they're shocking and bizarre and their encounters with otherworldly intelligences and, you know, so on and so forth. And he's like, yeah, but did I really have those experiences? I'm not so sure. Did I have them or did I not? They they brought me down this rabbit hole, but now what do I do? Um, and I, you know, he also has had a huge part of, you know, my own development and my own thinking. And I, I took a class with him a long time ago and it was just like, he, he was, I mean, he's just very, you know, it's great. He has an answer for everything, which is also kind of funny for someone who thinks that there are no <laughs> answers. But now... I'm not so sure I agree with him in that way anymore um, in the sense of like, that is one way of looking at things on the other. Maybe we can ask why, why does something feel real to me? Why is it worth asking if something's real, which is a different sort of question. It's like, um, someone described Gilles Deleuze once as, you know, saying, instead of being the philosopher who asks, why is there something instead of nothing? He would only say, why is there this something instead of this other something that the world is, um, that the world is filled with experiences and uh, encounters and so forth, which have some sort of distinction to them. And, uh, moving between the distinctions, whether ask, instead of asking whether they're real or not, um, is a different navigation process. And how do we deal with that kind of navigation? And I think that that's something that you write about 
a lot. I think it's something a lot of people write about a lot without, I think you, well, you realize it, but I think a lot of people write about without necessarily realizing it. Um, how is thought really, you know, all of psychoanalysis is like, how can we take thought as seriously as we take the world of objects? You know, um, it, there, there are plenty of examples. I could just give tons of examples, but it's navigating distinction rather than creating opposition, which you're saying, you know, it, that non-dualist way of doing things. I'm not just going to create oppositions, but I'm going to navigate uh, distinctions and relationships and, and notice that I'm navigating them <laughs> at the same time. Notice mm -hmm. that I am an I navigating, um, which is also an interesting thing to think about. So uh, this is something that I talked about a bit with Brian Evanson, uh, another great horror writer who explores reality claims and uh, all that on, on the show. And I, I wonder if, I think a lot of writers who handle cosmic horror would present a view of a sort of privileging of the nothingness but from everything you say, it sounds like you're kind of saying, no, it's all something. That in fact, if I'm going to talk about non-dualism, it's because there's not a lack there. It, there's not a void. That everything is something. That um, <laughs> that we can only add um, and not really subtract. And that's interesting to me. I mean, I don't know if you view yourself as writing from that position, but that's what I experience when I read your work. That's interesting. Thank you for that. I hadn't heard anybody put it that way before. Um, you know, from the from the absolute, from the viewpoint of the absolute mm -hmm. in non-duality, just in reality, um, that the absolute, the ground of being, reality, whatever, is nothing, because mm -hmm. it's it, it's something that can't be ever be perceived. It can't ever be grasped. It can't ever be known. It is what lies behind all perceptions, all knowledge, all experiences, even the attempt to, to describe it and think about it like this. You know, it, it always is what lies behind. And specifically what it lies behind is your eyes, you know, my eyes, your gaze, not just physically, but the very fact of being what seems to be a self-aware separate being. It's always prior, you know, so it's invisible and it seems like nothing. In fact, it's the, the fullness of everything. But that also means that uh, the idea that you can't say anything about it, uh, and this ties into whether the question of whether or not you know anything can be validly counted as real, playing off what you said about there always being a something, uh, it actually means you can you can talk about it to infinitude. You can never exhaust the possible means and metaphors by which you can speak about it. And that also means that the uh, the realm of the ten thousand things, that we inhabit the realm of separation, the dream of the world, you know, it may as well, it may as well be, it may as well exist. And it really is an infinite number of combinations. It really is just an infinitude of possible people, possible things, possible experiences. None of them are the absolute, only the absolute is the absolute. But imagine, imagine an infinite movie that can assume any number of configurations and be real to the characters who are living in it. That's I think that's that's the realm, and that's uh, 
going back to horror on, in one sense, you go, oh my gosh, that, that could be a total nightmare. Especially if you're an antinatalist, you're like, that's horrible. Why should that movie exist? Why should there be an infinitude of even notional beings that are going to suffer? Right. Yeah. It's also just a, a staggering, incomprehensibly overwhelming multiplicity of everything, pleasure, pain, mm. whatever, you know, it's not just all bad. In fact, it, in fact, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, on its own, in its own way, the realm of the world is kind of like the the absolute in that it just is, and it just inflects itself in different ways through our experiences at different times. Yeah, I mean that. <laughs> I wonder what you would say to you know if it, we're saying that the absolute is nothing, but of course that's only able to come from us <laughs> that that you know i mean that that's the that's the catch i suppose and so i don't know how to get past that i mean and i've read philosophers like quentin Sue and some other people try to get past but i can only say i the only reason that, that concept even exists is because i've you know either said it or come up with it or some you know and exist in my sort of thought space and all that so i don't i'm not sure how to get past that first impossible hurdle to say you thought, you, absolutely you I mean, nothing. the thing is it's like you are past it right now you know the very fact of your thought and your sense of that hurdle and the very fact that you have the concept and all that that's all just this cloud formation that's occurring within this absoluteness of being it's it's, <laughs> it's right there the way the wave is nothing but ocean the ocean's not a wave but the wave is all ocean it's never anything but yeah, but then that's another concept of yours, right? So I don't <laughs> know. That's why the image, the all images, the thing, all language. Yeah. All language is wrong. Yeah. At some point, everything you can possibly say when you're talking about these kinds of things is a self-contradiction. Every bit of it. It's just, it's, they're all pointing. They're not the real thing. They're the finger pointing at the moon. The metaphor of the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. You know, it's, it's right. you can get hung up on it. Right. And then, and then, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I experience thought in language either, or that anybody does. I mean, but I can only speak for myself, which is what I can only ever do. I mean, we can, maybe we'll go down this rabbit hole a bit more in private conversation, <laughs> but um, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I do, you know, I, I'm, I have a way of thinking about what you've said, which I, definitely uh think overlaps with what what you've said there um even if it will take further conversation for us to maybe get to that tuning <laughs> pitch or, or not um but yeah. it's that um you know what psychoanalysis calls the lack this emptiness in the middle of experience that is unreachable and that um you know in a lot of ways we can only sort of conceptually you know experience and talk about of course through psychoanalysis um so yeah. the people that have named it are the ones that are the best at describing it of course so it confers a sort of power to them but the way that i conceive of that is that that's actually that that's christ that the the nothingness from which the experiences emerge is a something and that's a being and that being is the christ being which uh, allows us to think about our own thoughts um, after the the mystery uh, on the hill, um, and th and that because of because of that, uh, 
what we're experiencing with the absolute and what we might say is nothing is actually an encounter with a being that um, offers us the ability to conceive of nothingness. So maybe this is not uh, where I imagined us ending uh, the conversation about horror, but, you know, questions of cosmic nothingness and somethingness are really where it's at and <laughs> what you talk about and questions of, you know, death and life. I mean, if, you know, I, I, I love people who take on the challenge of writing horror. That's not just about whether or not someone's going to die. Someone's going to get killed by a monster. And I think that you handle all of that so profoundly in your work and your reflections, your writing, not card. And so thanks for sharing it with all of us. Thank you, Connor. <laughs> and uh, thanks everybody for uh, listening and going along this journey with Matt and I. Matt, I hope you'll come back and we'll talk again more about all of this. I would love to. <laughs> Great. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Bye now. Bye now.